Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am Richard Roper. Where you guys been? How you guys been? We're uh, right smack dab in the middle of summer. I'm podcasting to you here from Chicago, my hometown. In the last 10 days in Chicago, uh, we had about three days where Chicago had the worst air quality in the world. Yay, we're number one. That was the uh, the offshoot of the smoke coming down from the wildfires in Canada, kind of enveloped the city. You saw the stories, and I'm sure you saw the pictures and the videos from New York and the East Coast a few weeks ago. Then it hit Chicago, so we had the, the sort of Blade Runner-esque skies for a couple of days. Then we had some beautiful summer days, and, and it was clear, and it was hot, and it was fantastic. And that's when Chicago is one of the greatest cities in the world and a, and a wonderful showcase. And that's why it's also a hugely popular tourist destination in the summertime. Then. Then we had uh, torrential rains coming down in near record amounts, all of that in the middle of the NASCAR race. NASCAR did the first ever street race here in Chicago, and they were finally able to get the race off. Uh, it was on a Sunday later in the evening. It was actually really cool, but kind of crazy. Uh, and then we had some huge thunderstorms. So we've had pretty much everything you could possibly have over the space of about 10 days in Chicago. But all fine everybody's doing well and there's all kinds of things happening in the world of entertainment uh mark zuckerberg has launched threads it's not about the uh, sheets it's not uh, uh thread counts or anything like that threads because we talk about you know the threads and the social media conversations that's the big competitor to twitter we're going to talk about that uh also the eagles one of the seminal uh, rock bands of the 1970s and beyond have announced their farewell tour we're going to talk about some bands and artists who have uh, gone on farewell tours and tons of new reviews for you guys as well including uh here's the title of it it's called mission impossible colon dead reckoning slash dash if you will dash part one mission impossible dead reckoning part one tom cruise finally getting in a big budget movie we're gonna have a review of that and some really cool documentaries that are out as well all of that coming up on today's podcast. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that... Today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. And thanks, as always, to AmericanEagle.com for making this podcast possible. Okay, so as we speak, uh, we're just a day or two into the launch of Threads. Uh, here's a story from the New York Times. After months of speculation and secrecy, Mark Zuckerberg's long-rumored Competitor app to Twitter is here. The new app, Threads, was unveiled as a companion to Instagram, which, of course, is the popular photo sharing network that Mr. Zuckerberg's company, Meta, bought more than a decade ago. Remember, it's Meta now. That's the name of the, of, of the big company. There was something about a, a face in a book, but it's all Meta now, right? Uh, if Instagram executives get their way, Threads will also replace rival Twitter with some techies referring to it as a Twitter killer. I'm not so sure about that. We will see. Uh, but this ramps up the rivalry between Mr. Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, who bought Twitter last year. Now, Musk has changed, this is the New York Times saying this, Mr. Musk has changed the experience of Twitter by tinkering with its algorithm and other features. 
and most recently imposed temporary limits on how many tweets people could read when using the app, and that incited outrage. There's always something going on on Twitter now. A lot of Twitter is people who use Twitter or are on Twitter complaining about Twitter, and I acknowledge that some of the changes under Elon Musk have been alarming. Some of the favoritism of certain tweets and conspiracy theories and viewpoints. Listen, everybody's entitled to their point of view, but some of these are really, uh, you know, scary. In some cases, uh, completely false when we talk about conspiracy theories. And that is very troubling. People are looking for other places to go. I know there are tons of other Twitter-like apps uh, that people go on. Uh, at some point, you know, you go, how many of these things am I going to do? Now, I did join threads. You can look me up uh, on Twitter. I'm Richard E. Roper. Most other places, just Richard Roper. I mean, if you want to go to Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, I appreciate that. Uh, I did join threads. It was pretty, it's actually kind of funny because everybody joining threads, we all sounded like Alexander Graham Bell, you know, like when you first you see all those old movies where he's like, you know, asking Watson to come here, like testing it out, or at least we sounded like we did when we all first got cell phones. And, you know, we would just call people to say, hey, I, I, can you hear me? I'm on a cell phone. Uh, or when people would call, remember the airplane phone that you'd pull out from the seat back in front of you with the cord that would always kind of snap back into place. And it was a, a million dollars a minute to call from the skies. And people would call to go, hey, you're not going to believe this. I'm calling you from an airplane. So we're all doing that on threads. Everyone's kind of like, you know, hello, anybody here? Hello. Uh, it seems to be working fine. It it looks a lot like Twitter married Instagram and had an app baby. A lot of similar features, pretty easy to use. But, you know, there are some complaints, the BBC reporting that there's a lack of a private messaging feature and no hashtag or trends, uh, things involved that will help you navigate popular content. As I mentioned, I, I did join, but I don't know how much time I'm going to spend on threads. I'm certainly, I'm not leaving Twitter, maybe one day, but, you know, I have found Twitter to be a very valuable communication tool a mostly positive experience. I follow a, a lot of fun and interesting people, not just famous people, but just people who are, you know, have shared common interests, which is the whole point. You know, I'm a fan of the Chicago White Sox. So I'm in some groups with White Sox fans and obviously movies and pop culture and things like that. And then just some people that are really funny and interesting. And then, yes, of course, a lot of big names who are very good and creative on Twitter. And I'm lucky enough that some of them follow me back. I've gotten to know some people and actually even what do they call it? IRL in real life. I've met with a couple of people who I first met through Twitter and direct messaging and eventually getting together for a drink or a, a bite to eat. And that that's been really cool. Uh, and I do find that Twitter is very helpful in terms of, you know, listen, I also use it to drive uh, traffic to the suntimes.com website where my written reviews are at and to this podcast. We promote this podcast on Twitter. Um, so, you know, I've got uh, Twitter, I've got two Facebook accounts because if you create a personal account and then there, you have a public account, and I was at a television station a few years back that insisted that I open a second professional account to promote everything I was doing on, on that local TV station, but you can't combine the two. And if you, you try to kill one account, they won't automatically have the users or followers or friends or whatever the case may be go to your other account. So I have to maintain these two accounts. And as I mentioned, Twitter and the Instagram, I have an Instagram account and then now threads. And, you know, you get to a certain point where you're like, I have to actually do work, not just talk about the work. So 
to me, that's always been the, the double-edged sword of social media. I know some people uh, have people who do their accounts for them. I don't, uh, I don't want that, quite frankly. I think sometimes people get into trouble because somebody's running their accounts and saying things they wouldn't say. And I don't want it just to be automated and impersonal. I could figure out a way to do that. I do like the fact that we can have fun on Twitter. You know, last week, uh, leading up to the 4th of July, uh, you know, Jaws, of course, the original Jaws movie is set, you know, in the days and hours leading up to and then including the 4th of July. So I had a lot of fun tweeting different things about Jaws and and sharing stuff, uh, things like that. I don't get super personal on the social media stuff. I know a lot of people do. That's just not my thing. I also feel like some people overdo it and, and feel like we're more interested than we than we really are in the salad they had for lunch or every single thing their child or dog does. I'm a little guilty on Instagram of getting into that. I do uh, post uh, some photos and videos of my pup, uh, but and occasionally, uh, you know, make references to family and friends and stuff. But I, I like to just kind of keep that. Not that I think I'm that big of a deal. I just like I just always was that way. I, I don't want to impose on people and say, you know, here's everything that's going on in my life, which is just so fabulous which of course, that's a whole other topic. The, you know, the fantastic unicorn lives that people purport to have on Facebook and on Instagram in particular, a lot of the photo sharing sites. And I'm not talking about, again, yes, I'm talking about famous people, but also just people you know, or people you're casually acquainted with. And you're like, oh my God, okay, you're the greatest. You have the hugest house and the best vacation. And we all know that everybody has their problems and has other dark sides. And some people are very bold and brave and share that as well. But it gets a little overbearing sometimes with everybody kind of not even humble bragging, just bragging about their lives. So Threads is out there. Uh, tons of people are joining it. You know, at some point, I don't know if we're all just kind of echoing in our own canyons, because I, I know as soon as I joined Threads, a lot of people who started following me are people that are following me elsewhere, and that's fine. If there's some sort of mass exodus from Twitter where a lot of the people that I follow actually really do quit, people have been saying they're going to quit, and some people have left, then Threads, I think, is definitely going to be the fallback, the safety school, if you will, for apps. And we'll see. We'll see. I, 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 the competition is good. It, it's a little amusing that Zuckerberg and Musk, you know, I've even talked about a cage mask match. A cage musk, a cage max match, uh, which uh, these two guys, these two idiots aren't going to actually get in a ring and fight. I hope not anyway. Uh, but there you have it. So I'm on threads now, Richard Roper, Instagram, Twitter. I'm just happy you guys are, are right here on the Richard Roper podcast. I want to mention a couple of other things. Uh, this is from Entertainment Weekly. The Eagles have announced their final tour, the Hotel California crooners, as they call them. We'll be joined on the road by fellow Hall of Fame inductee Steely Dan, kicking off their tour in September at Madison Square Garden. Uh, the current show dates feature uh, the Eagles, who are now Don Henley, Joe Walsh, Timothy B. Schmidt, Vince Gill, and Deacon Fry, rocking out until November across the East Coast. And then they might, um, I'm sure they're going to expand, because those, you know, whenever you see the list of the highest grossing concert tours, uh, with a few exceptions, such as, uh, you know, obviously uh, Taylor Swift, who is going to grow something like a billion dollars on this current tour. Uh, you know, and there's Adele and Beyonce when she tours at Sheeran. There are some modern acts that do really, really well, but also a lot of the bands and acts from the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, will gross and gross. They will gross you out. No, they will gross millions upon millions of dollars. 
whether it's Billy Joel, Elton John, Guns N' Roses, the Rolling Stones. I saw the Rolling Stones in Chicago about three years ago, I want to say three or four summers ago, and they were unbelievably good, unbelievably tight band, filling Soldier Field with a capacity of like 65 to 70,000, two nights in a row. Couple of things to note here. First of all, I don't believe it when any band or act announces their final tour. They almost always have so much fun on the final tour, they decide to keep going. Frank Sinatra was retiring his whole career from about 1971. At least, maybe earlier than that, Frank Sinatra would announce that he was retiring. The Who did a farewell tour in 1982. They still show up once in a while. Ozzy Osbourne in 92 said, that's it for me. Kiss in the year 2000. Elton, the aforementioned Elton John, who's now again saying these are going to be some of my last shows. He first said he was going to uh, exit the stage, so to speak, in 1977, folks, and uh, continues to perform. So take that with a grain of salt. I I do love the Eagles. I saw them maybe seven years ago. Melissa Etheridge opened for them at an outdoor venue in the Chicago area, and they were amazing. They're fantastic musicians. I know some people think they're lamestream, mainstream, whatever. Uh, I think they're great. My only complaint when I saw the Eagles, though, was that at least maybe more than half of the concert was them performing solo songs by various members. Because uh, Joe Walsh, of course, uh, and James Gang and then as a solo act has had some huge hits like, you know, in the city. Uh, Glenn Fry, the late Glenn Fry, who, who passed away about five years ago, uh, had uh, some huge hits, Smuggler's Blues. And uh, You Belong to the City, Don Henley, The Boys of Summer, all great songs. But if I want to see the solo acts, I'll go see the solo acts. So by the time they got done doing all the solo numbers and playing on each other's solo songs, which they must have all agreed to do, they only had time for like eight Eagles songs. So I hope the Eagles play Eagles songs on the Eagles farewell tour. That would seem to make sense. Uh, one other quick note before we take a break, and this is, uh, again, we're going to mention Twitter, but in a different uh, context, Twitter has uh, settled a retaliation claim over return to office protests. This is from the LA Times. Uh, Twitter has settled with a former employee who U.S. Labor Board prosecutors concluded was illegally punished for protesting its return to office mandate. So a software engineer had posted a message saying to other workers, hey, you know, let's let's take collective action against this return to office policy, because when Elon Musk took control of Twitter, he told employees they would immediately be expected to spend at least 40 hours per week in the office. So there's a lot of back and forth about that, like a lot of other companies, like almost all companies, obviously, uh, other than essential worker type things uh, during the pandemic. Twitter had everybody working from home. And then it was like, hey, got to come back to the office. And you know, this is a delicate thing because a lot of people found that returning to work was not an easy experience in terms of just the anxiety they felt, the social pressure, just various other things. And I think that's all legitimate. I also think in a lot of cases, uh, some people used working from home as an excuse to not work so much from home, whether it was intentional and deceptive, or they just didn't have the discipline to do so. So I, I, I kind of straddle the fence on this. I really respect that for some people, it's really tough to go back to work. But I also think that a lot of people took advantage of it. And I have talked to managers in different businesses, not just in the media world, who have found it very frustrating, because they have to be careful and respectful of laws and individual feelings and rights and responsibilities and all of that, but also need to run their companies. And in some cases, they're absolutely convinced and have 
again, I'm not going to get into specifics, but have absolute evidence that some of their employees are taking advantage of this. Uh, for me, uh, I'm podcasting to you guys. I podcast from the American Eagle.com studios, which are in suburban Chicago. And then sometimes I do it from my home office. Uh, I go to as many screenings as possible in public, but also get links and watch a lot of things at home. Uh, I've been writing mostly from home, sometimes on the road. Uh, but again, I have a, I'm lucky enough to have a, a home setup, but I, that's where I do my reviews. But I will say this, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, guys. And before I even got hired at the Sun-Times, I worked as a freelance writer. And anybody who's done any kind of freelance work knows that it's completely up to you how much work you're going to do, how much work you're going to try to get, and how much effort you're going to put into it. Nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit if you decide that you're just not going to do anything on a Tuesday because you're a freelancer. You're also not going to get paid. So I'm talking about like when I was 21, 22 years old. I mean, I would work some part-time, you know, different jobs. I worked in a in an auto parts warehouse. I worked ripping up carpet. Believe it or not, I even worked on a, there are farms in Illinois. Believe it or not, there are lots of farms when you get it more than 30 miles outside of Chicago. I picked onions a couple of summers. I did whatever I had to do. I didn't, I never shied away from work, but as somebody trying to get freelance writing work, man, I hustled my ass off because a lot of the time you're doing stuff on speculation. You're coming up with article ideas. Sometimes I would write entire pieces and send them off. Um, I'm not saying this is a, from a woe is me standpoint. I'm just saying that I learned early on that you have to approach freelance work or working from home with the same dedication and discipline as if you were going into an office. When I was at the Sun-Times as a, a general interest news reporter, and then for years as a columnist, and I wrote about everything from news to pop culture, to sports, et cetera, et cetera, I really enjoyed going into the newsroom. And especially as a columnist where I had to come up with five ideas and five columns per week. And some days you're like, oh my God, there's so much to write about. And some days you're like, what the hell am I gonna write about? And it really would help to be around other reporters or columnists and editors and just people. And somebody might, you know, a conversation might spark something or somebody covering a story. I hear a lot of times from reporters saying, hey, Rope, I'm covering this story. I have, obviously I have to remain objective and just stick to the facts. But there might be a column here because of this angle or you should come to the courtroom because this lawyer uh, is so flamboyant and entertaining. And I think you could do a great profile on them, you know, great things like that. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, and then for years, uh, I was going into radio stations either every day or two or three times a week. And I loved going into, you know, when I was doing daily radio, uh, afternoon radio, things like that, that really, there was no talk. We, some of us had, you know, setups where if you were sick or otherwise incapacitated or on the road, you could do your show, or co-host the show from remote locations, but you know, you have to be there most of the time, 99% of the time. And I love that. You love being in a, in an environment. Uh, same thing with when I, and I continue to do local uh, TV in Chicago, you love seeing other people and, and, and crew and salespeople and all of that. And that's all, I think, I think that all kind of energizes you and, and makes you feel like you're part of something. Uh, that said, I do a lot of work on my own from home now, but I, have been doing it for a long time and I treat it the same way. I get up at seven every morning, you know, shower, shave, uh, or get a workout at first and, and then get dressed as if I'm going into the office. Okay. Not quite that dressed. I've been shorts and a t-shirt right now, but I, I take the same approach. So I think it's a tricky thing. And for those of you out there who are reluctant to return to the workplace, I hope you at least consider some of those factors as well, but, um, it's a different era. I don't think we're ever going to have the levels and the percentages of people who are working in offices as we did pre-pandemic. Okay, let's take a break and talk about Portillo's and then we'll come back with some reviews. 
All right, it's time to tell you about Portillo's, the greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're ever having, ever in your life. Let's talk about the hot dogs and all the famous Chicago ingredients. They'll do it for you, so you don't have to worry about getting it wrong. That includes the poppy seed bun. Then we could talk about the Italian beef, the sausage, and the fries, the salad, the chicken, you name it, all topped up, of course, with the legendary Portillo's chocolate cake. It's fast casual. That means it's better than fast food. You can sit down if you go to one of the restaurants, but it's still super casual. And you can order anywhere in the country via Portillo's.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Once again, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Ask your friends from Chicago about it. Portillo's.com. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. His fate is written. Shall we write yours, too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. That is a clip from Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, uh, a movie that people have been talking about for years. They actually released, I don't know how long it was, like 8 or 10 minutes of footage uh, last year just to show Tom Cruise. We all know this. He's 60 years old and he's nuts. Uh, and he does his own stunts as often as possible. And they're incredible. And this time he's sky jump falling, flying and all this good stuff. And it's, it is incredible stuff. Uh, my review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is this. First of all, yes, the stunts are amazing. The practical effects, you know, obviously there's some CGI brought in and, and you know, you weave that in as well. It's really incredible. And this is another one of these very long summer movies, but unlike a lot of the other summer movies that we've had in the or spring movies, if you will, I'm talking about you, Fast and Furious. I'm talking about you, Flash. Those were too long and could have been shortened. This goes by so quickly because it also has, you know, fantastic cast, uh, snappy dialogue. I would say it's maybe the most self-aware and humorous of the Mission Impossible movies. They're, uh, they kind of know that we're getting into some pretty crazy territory here, kind of uh, bond on extra vitamin supplements, if you will. And, you know, they go back to, there are a lot of uh, callbacks to the original Brian De Palma film from 30 years ago, almost. Uh, and, you know, the thing, they're doing a lot of stuff with the masks again, where, where they go undercover as somebody else. And then they do that. I mean, the, the mask reveal when they pull off the mask to me is cheesy 1965 stuff, man, because it's clear that the real actor is portraying the person. And then the, the person who's disguised as them stands in and they tear the mask off. Ooh, I can't believe it's really you. Uh, you just got to go with it. Uh, the plot is all about, uh, once again, uh, getting control of a device that's going to allow somebody to control all the information. When you control information, you can control the world. So there's this AI development that can uh, 
make everything undetectable and turn allies into enemies and turn the world upside down and you got to get these two keys for it and blah it's the same shit you know with it's in every almost every one of these movies there's a MacGuffin. everybody needs control of it if it falls into the wrong hands it's going to mean the end of the world it's really all about the characters and the cool set pieces there's some good twists and turns and yes it's part one so it leaves us you know wanting more so if you're into the Mission Impossible movies and, you know, Tom Cruise, God bless him, is an advocate for seeing movies in theaters. And this is only going to be in theaters as it should be. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. I mean, some of these early raves you see from junkets and stuff where they call it the greatest action movie ever made. Just settle down. It's it's one of it's in the middle, actually, as far as Mission Impossible movie goes. But it is a franchise where every sequel has been at least worth seeing. So Dead Reckoning Part One is good stuff. I also really enjoyed Joyride. Uh, this is, you know, we're we're getting more and more of these female fronted ensemble comedies, but they're still relatively rare. I mean, we talk about Bridesmaid from a dozen years ago and Trainwreck and Booksmart and Girls Trip and The Heat. This one, you know, is is notable. And again, because it's relatively rare is that you've got uh, uh, an Asian-American lead cast, three women, uh, one uh, actor who identifies as binary. They're all fantastic and funny. And uh, this is a friendship comedy and it's a road trip comedy. Uh, it's got the obligatory a few touching moments, but man, it really goes hard for that R rating. Uh, I loved it. You got to know what you're in for here. It's just it's just nice to see something like this in the movies where, you know, the women can can have a, an adventure just like the guys from The Hangover. So that's good stuff. And I, I mentioned there's some great documentaries I want to get to. Uh, first of all, uh, Wham!, and when you say wham, you have to have an exclamation point at the end of it. And for those of you who might not remember or weren't around, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely in the early 80s were this pop duo who came out of nowhere. They were very young in their early 20s, and they hit it huge with uh, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and uh, Careless Whisper, Everything She Wants, uh, Last Christmas. They had a string of number one hits. They were very uh, confection. It was interesting because they started off as kind of a social protest group immediately, though, they really just wanted to do hits and people really ripped into them, a lot of critics, but they were just having fun and their songs were really catchy. And to this day they are, uh, and they lasted for all of four years because George Michael wanted to become one of the biggest pop stars in the world to rival Madonna and, and Michael Jackson. And he did. And Andrew Ridgely acknowledged that, that, you know, this was really George Michael fan. They started off writing songs together. Then George was writing everything. And Andrew had some, some demons to deal with, but, uh, for the most part, pretty much happily accepted that, that the band was never going to last forever. They weren't going to be doing these songs when they were 50 years old. And he's done okay. You know, first of all, he's made tons because he was always co-accredited uh, as being co-writer on most of the hits. And he's done some other things. He tried to do a little acting and a little racing and this and that. But mostly he's just uh, living his, his best life. We lost George Michael, of course, uh, several years ago, very young in his 50s. Uh, but Wham! is just a very, it's just about Wham! It's not about George Michael's life and times after that. It's just about that that period when Wham! ruled the charts, and it's a lot of fun. And then there's some great sports documentaries out there. Uh, Netflix has Quarterback. It's an eight-part series. You know, they, they did F1 Racing. They did uh, Pro Golf. They're doing these deep dives into sports where they spend time with a handful of the, the sports top performers and, they, and a whole year with them. And the, the greatest thing about this is, 
the athletes become more and more comfortable with the cameras if you spend months with them. So in this case, it follows uh, Patrick Mahomes, who's you know, arguably the best player in the league, uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. I think is going to be in the conversation as the greatest, one of the greatest players of all time, already should be. Uh, Kirk Cousins, who's 34 and a veteran and has had some good years, but has always been plagued by criticism that he can't win the big one. He's not a primetime performer. And he's had, you know, he's on how he's with the Vikings. And then Marcus Mariota, who's got an interesting storyline too, because he won the Heisman Trophy. He was the second overall pick in the NFL draft. But then he eventually uh, stalled out at Tennessee and got benched and went to the Raiders. And now he's with the Falcons, as we pick up the story, kind of his last chance to become a starting quarterback in the NFL. So it follows all three of them through uh, an amazingly uh, dramatic, up and down season, uh, the the Vikings uh, had the greatest comeback of all time in one game. Mahomes, of course, led the Chiefs to the Super Bowl and a victory and overcame uh, injury. And then Marcus Mariota had this whole storyline where he got benched and left the team. So a lot of drama inherent in that really well done uh, quarterback on Netflix. This is about as close as they'll ever get to seeing what it's like to be a quarterback in this league. I dedicate my life to football. All day, all day. I love to compete. I love the relationships that come with that. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. He's four. He's down. Oh, I would have gotten up. Everybody sees the game days, but they don't see the day-to-day -day grind. Every season's a roller coaster. Hey, you get one opportunity a week. Marcus will keep it and score. Let's go! It's really nice to get him away from football and spend time with our family. You get one game plan, one game in a completely different game plan the next. I know what I signed up for. You just got to be able to buck with your chin strap up. I'm here all day. I'm here all day. I'm here all I also want to mention a documentary. It's playing in theaters now and then will be available on streaming. It's called The League. The movie's called The League. It's a documentary about the Negro Leagues. And it's an amazing story. It's been told before in other documentaries. Uh, it was a chapter or an inning, if you will, in the Ken Burns baseball documentary, but still a story continually worth telling. And I, and I love the background that they tell us about here in the league, because believe it or not, in the 19th century, baseball was integrated. And then there were some racist players and owners who said, if any black players take the field against our team, we're not going to play. So then there was a ban, you know, apartheid, if you will, was installed for 50 plus years. And the Negro Leagues came about in the 20s uh, because there were so many great players and so many smart entrepreneurial owners who figured out instead of just having barnstorming teams and kind of pick up games, let's put out a league just like the major leagues. And that's how you got teams like the Kansas City Monarchs and the Homestead Grays and the Chicago American Giants, and all these legendary players like Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and Satchel Paige. And it chronicles all of that. And then, of course, tells us the story of uh, integration with Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays and Larry Doby and Roy Campanella. And there's a lot of interesting nuances to the what happened in the 30s and the 40s with the Negro Leagues and with integration in baseball. The documentary is called The League. It is great. The last thing I want to mention, and this is pretty special, but also... There's a, a troublesome element I'll get to in a moment. Uh, Showtime has a three-part documentary series called Goliath. 
Everything about Wilt was excessive. He knew everything and all things about anything. Wilt was the Renaissance man. He was the first rock and roll superstar in basketball. The statistics he put up. Score 100 points in a basketball game. Average 50 points a game. That's video game shit, man. The amount of women that he may or may not have vetted. Wilt did always like to put up numbers. <laughs> He was always on trial. The idea to have the giant be beaten these times, a lot of people loved that. No one loved Goliath. People looked at Will Chamberlain as though he was a freak. By God. Goliath is not supposed to lose. I think he was one of the most misunderstood people that I've ever seen. It is a... Uh... For the most part, riveting documentary about Wilt Chamberlain. If you're an NBA fan, if you're a younger fan and you don't know, maybe you just know the name. Wilt Chamberlain uh, was among the handful of greats in the 50s, mostly the 60s and 70s, who revolutionized the game. And Wilt Chamberlain uh, was Shaq before Shaq. He was a dominant big man. He was also this amazing character as a person. Very intelligent, uh, very aware, uh, very much into promoting himself, a la so many athletes these days, and enjoying a lifestyle, but also into culture and learning and music. And it was just a, a fascinating guy. But of course, you know, all everybody thought about him when he was a young star in the NBA was, oh my God, there's this giant. And he was Goliath and he was considered kind of bad guy. Uh, and David was the Celtics and Bill Russell, and, and they had this great rivalry. But the documentary is amazing because it really gets into uh, Will Chamberlain, not only as a player, but as a human being. And you hear from so many former teammates and associates who have really great things to say about him as a person as well, because then there was all the, you know, all the stories about his womanizing ways. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there because he was a champion for, for women and for women athletes financially so backing them and using his high profile but also claimed to have slept with twenty thousand women i don't know you do the math on that but all very interesting and fascinating stuff my here's my misgiving my one caveat about goliath on showtime will chamberlain narrate narrates his own documentary from the grave he's he's been gone for quite a while more than 20 years now uh and, you know this has happened before where people have used archival recordings or an actor and voiceover so somebody who's no longer with us can narrate their own documentary in this case they used ai they used artificial intelligence with the blessing of the chamberlain uh, estate and his family etc um and all of the quotes are either things he said in interviews or wrote in books or you know were attributed to him so it's not like they're changing his narrative it's just that when you see the interviews with the real life Will Chamberlain on television shows or in locker rooms or whatever, he had a very distinctive booming voice. And then when you hear the voiceover, it sounds a lot like Will Chamberlain, but not quite. And maybe if I didn't know it was AI, I wouldn't have picked up on that, but I think I would have. There's a, something about the timber of it. It's a little tinny, a little echoey. And the inflections aren't quite as nuanced and richly layered as an actual human being speaking. It's incredible what they've done with the technology. It's also incredibly troubling. Uh, the good news is they don't use it a ton in the documentary. You'll go 10, 15, 20 minutes where they don't do it. But every time they went back to that voiceover, I found myself being taken out of the story. So my feeling is they would have been better off not using it, but it's here. 
And it's going to be prevalent in a lot of other ways beyond the media for the rest of our lives. Anyway, Goliath on Showtime, the league in theaters, quarterback on Netflix, all really, really solid, provocative, interesting sports documentaries. And then don't forget about Wham! and that little Tommy Cruise movie. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of the Richard Roper Podcast. Thanks to everybody for downloading and subscribing and listening and sharing with their friends. And we'll talk again soon.